Well, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 is one of those uncomfortable passages. Bluntly, when I read it, it, to my modern sensibilities, uh, it is not a comfortable passage to read. I don't like to read the word bondservants. I don't like to read the word masters. In some translations, it actually says slaves. And uh, due to our more recent history of our own nation and the sinful outworkings of that sin and and what has happened over time with it, Honestly, I think both as a national conscience as well as even individually, uh, to read such words at times doesn't exactly sit right with us. You know, there's other passages in the Scripture that are uncomfortable, but for for very good reason in our life, they confront our sin. And in confronting that sin, it makes us uncomfortable, or maybe it calls us to greater commitment and dedication to our Lord. And because of our lack of earnestness and commitment, it, it brings about uncomfortableness in our life. But a passage like this, it's for different reasons. And we read it and, and we think, was, was Paul writing here in some way trying to affirm or, or embrace slavery in some way? And because that question will linger in our head and because slavery lasted for centuries beyond the New Testament, even into our just almost modern times. And in fact, there are some countries that just recently outlawed slavery, like within the last 25 to 30 years. I mean, this is, this is something that's been legalizing countries for centuries upon centuries. And we even see modern-day slavery in other ways uh, through other illegal means that are used to, to put people into slavery in such a rightfully way on us and make us uncomfortable. But what I hope we will see out of the passage this morning is that the gospel actually transforms everything, including our relationships in our work. The gospel transforms everything, even our working relationships. I think we will see this out of the passage and can rightfully draw this from that as we read through this. And what I'm going to do is use the pattern of a lesser ideal relationship. That is, the the lesser ideal is that here which Paul has to deal with, the the issue of slavery in the Greco-Roman world. And from that lesser, I'm going to make the greater argument that God has transformed our working relationships. And, And very specifically, that no matter what circumstances God has placed you in, no matter what circumstances God has placed you in, you must do all your work as an act of doing the will of God from the heart. Hear me again. No matter what circumstance, you realize, I'm going to argue this from the less than ideal position of a slave in the Greco-Roman world. If God would ask that one to do his work as an act of the will of God from his heart, that we are asked to do the same. Now, a little bit about slavery in the Greco-Roman world. We need to be realistic about what it's like. No, it is not like slavery as we saw in the centuries up through in in modern American history, up through the 1800s, that even in some ways lingered into the 1900s. The slavery wasn't exactly like that. But make no mistake, slavery in the Greco-Roman world was no pleasant place to be. 
In the Greco-Roman world, in the time of Christ, around the first century, it's estimated that in Rome itself, in the capital city of the Roman Empire, it may have been as high as 85 to 90 percent slaves. They, they actually looked, that may have extended even into the, uh, the, the uh, isthmus that is Italy, that it may have been that far. It's hard to tell exactly beyond that because the, the records aren't as, as well kept. But there is, there is testimony from antiquity that they may have had slavery or slaves in, in Rome itself upwards of 90%. I mean, just imagine that. You probably know the story of Spartacus, right? I think it's Spartacus the movie, if I remember right, just to give you a homework assignment. If you go watch it, I think that's the movie they made the mistake when they made it. They forgot to tell all the extras to take off the wristwatch. Just for the record, there were no wristwatches in the Greco-Roman world. But if you remember the story of Spartacus, it's all about a slave rebellion. And the Romans feared it. Because you hear the numbers, right? I mean, it was, it was massive. And so in a lot of ways, they were trying to ensure that slaves were in a position that they couldn't rebel. Even beyond Rome and, and Italy itself, when you looked in the wider Roman Empire, the estimates are somewhere between 20 to about 33% of the Greco-Roman Empire was made up of slaves. People in slavery. So one thing you should hear is, one of the reasons Paul has to deal with this is there was no way to avoid that there would be Christians who were slaves in the Greco-Roman world. He had to deal with it. It was such a prevalent practice. Now, it was a bit different than what we know uh, in the southern United States, particularly as was practiced here, and it may help a little bit to understand some of the nuances. Um, There's a lot of writing on slavery in the ancient Greco-Roman world from writers as far as back as Aristotle, uh, another one, a modern one, or I said not a modern, sorry, contemporary one to the time of Christ was uh, one named Seneca. Uh, He was actually Seneca the Younger, if you go look him. I know you were worried about that. But Seneca, he writes about it as well. You find another one named Xenophon who writes about it. So you can read through these and begin to get a feel for what slavery was like in the Greco-Roman world. One thing you find out is that in some cases, the practice was that you would free slaves when they reached the age of 30. So where a lot of times we may perceive that slavery was for a lifetime, and it could be, but there was this general practice that you would honor a slave for good work and and free them at the age of 30. So there was a time they could anticipate being free. Now, let's be realistic. In the ancient world, it's not like you lived into your 80s, 90s, and 100s, right? 30 meant you were pretty well on in life. And so you may only have 10 or 20 years left max. Um, But nonetheless, there was some hope of being free. Here's another one that was interesting. Slaves could have their own slaves in the Greco-Roman world. They actually, because of their ability to earn income, because if you look at slaves in the Greco-Roman world, they they could take positions of very high wealth. They actually could gain a lot of wealth. In fact, we have examples of slaves being freed and being, becoming governors of provinces in the ancient Greco-Roman world. And so the, the technical term is manumission, that you free them from slavery. The owner, and that is the right term, you were seen as an owned piece of property, could choose to free you, or you could actually buy your way out of slavery. There was ways to do that because you could make real income, as evidenced by the fact you could have other slaves that you could buy. 
So it is a different world than what we might be used to based on our more recent history. But let's make no mistake, it also was a world given to abuse. You read, you know, it talks about beating slaves with rods. It talks about hitting them with lashes. In fact, one of the play on words that, that you hear in like Seneca is don't lash them with the thong, that is the whip, lash them with your tongue. I mean, it was very vivid what they would do. You could, there was actually part of the rules that they, they had looked at taking. You see there's a discussion that goes on actually with, with Socrates. Xenophon ca- captures this as a recount that talks about maybe we should practice what the Persians did and what the Persians would do if they ever caught a slave being dishonest or were stealing and you caught them in the act and you should, and it says you should imprison them and execute them. So robbery, theft became an executable offense. And that wasn't necessary throughout the Roman Empire, but it did occur. I mean, you remember our Lord, why is he crucified on a cross? You did that to make an example. If you are going to rebel against the Roman government, this is what will happen to you. That was the death of a slave. And see, you need to realize slavery is not some sort of ideal. If we ever, because I know sometimes people try to say, well, it's not as bad as as you think it would be. Absolutely, it it was. Now, not every, I mean, you could have good, faithful masters, and we're going to see that in the passage. But we need to treat this realistically, what's going on. Now, you know, in our modern sensibilities, we would have loved to have seen Paul just come out and just overtly condemn slavery and say, enough's enough. No one should have slaves. We're done. That's not what he does. In fact, that's not what Peter does. If you look in second, in, over in 1 Peter chapter 2, this is not how the New Testament approaches it. Rather, it deals with this reality that there is a large percentage of slaves in the, those that are both masters and slaves had to learn to live together in the body of Christ. Now, Paul actually goes beyond that, and I'm going to show you that in a second. Realize, though, what's going on. When our Lord came, one of the great expectations among some was that he would come as a conquering Messiah to overthrow political governments and just change everything in his first coming. That is not how our Lord brought about the kingdom of God. What he did is he came and he said, I am going to rule the hearts of my people. And so his people become the very standard by which he will then change the world changing the hearts of men and women that follows in the new testament the new testament does not take up a i say new testament beyond the gospels it doesn't take up a mantle of political revolt and revolution that is not what it does quite the opposite it it says we're going to live in the world that we are currently in and we're going to slowly change the hearts of men and women so that changes the very nature in which we relate and that's what we're going to see in this passage that the very nature and the way they were to live with one another and relate gets changed by the gospel. If you look, just, just to give you an idea in looking at, at how Paul and Peter write about it, slavery is, is put into a generally negative light when it's not falling under the lordship of Christ. I mean, just think about it. In Galatians 5.1, he speaks of the yoke of slavery, he says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, interesting enough, 
this is a metaphor being used to say, don't go submit yourself to the legalism of the Mosaic Covenant again, because that is a slavery upon you, a yoke you are not to take. The only yoke that our Lord calls us to take is which yoke? His yoke. Take my yoke upon you, because what? My burden is easy, it is light. Because there's only one master you want to be under, and that is Christ. In 1 Timothy 6, 6 verse 1, Paul writes, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, so he is taking on literal slavery directly here, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Notice what he says. Let all who are not just bondservants, he literally says, are under a yoke as bondservants. He doesn't paint this in a positive light. He just deals with the reality. You are in a position that you're under the control of another. But even in that situation, as we will see, you are still to live for God because he is your true master. Or Peter in 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 22 Another household code is called the New Testament, which we've seen here in Ephesians. It's also in Colossians, and you see here in 1 Peter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the, isn't it interesting, to the unjust. Okay, that's not normal human response, is it? We have a phrase for this in the modern world, give it to the man. But that's not what Peter writes is supposed to be done, and neither does Paul in Ephesians. Picking up in verse 19 of 1 Peter 2, for this is a gracious thing, gracious and undeserved thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering, how? Unjustly. Do you see that the way Peter writes about this is he sees the relationship of being held in bondage as an as a unjust relationship that it's not right but he says even in the unjust relationship to serve god i mean this this calling that we need to realize in our lives that we will serve god at all points goes to the you can look at it two ways the least among us who are in the worst of positions are called to serve god even in amidst injustice or use them as the greatest example they have the greatest injustice and suffering, and they still serve God from their heart. And this is what Paul will continue to argue as well. You see, Peter saw unjust treatment and slavery as suffering is analogous to Christ's suffering. Do you see that? If you keep going in verse 20 of 1 Peter 2, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Okay, you hear the violence of slavery there, right? But if it, when you are good and do and but when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So he's saying, in one case you're being punished because you should; in the other, you're being punished and you shouldn't. Which is greater to show grace? It's when you do good and are punished that shows greater grace, because you suffer even when you shouldn't. And the example given for to this you have been called because who? Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
He committed no sin, neither was deceitful, deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile or return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued doing what? Entrusting himself to him, that is God, to him who judges justly. You see, what Peter argues in 1 Peter chapter 2 is you suffer graciously because the greatest example is the one who saved us. There is nothing that our Lord was given as punishment that he deserved. And yet we are called to follow in his footsteps and say, suffer like that one, who even when done and suffered unjustly, still suffered for the glory of God. You know, Paul, if you look over in 1 Corinthians 7, talks about, just to, to show you where Paul was headed with his ideas in slavery, he actually says, if you find an opportunity to be freed, take it. In 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 24, he writes, were you a bondservant when, when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. You hear Paul's words. If you're a bondservant, and he's basically saying, you can still serve God there. But if it, if it becomes available to you, gain your freedom. Take it. For he who is called, was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Your social status among men may say you are a slave. Your status with God says you are what? Freed. Likewise, he who was free when called is a what? Bondservant, a slave of Christ. He's saying, you think you're free, but you're not free to just do whatever you want. You have a master, a Lord, whose name is Christ, whom you are to serve. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Do you hear Paul? He's like, do not commit yourself over into, into slavery don't do that. Now, Paul's actually thinking not only just literal slavery where they can control your life because they own you as property, he's thinking you can go beyond that. And we're going to see that in people pleasing. You become slave, slaves to men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. That is, he's saying, look, if you're bond or free, you can remain there with God and serve him. But don't miss what he said before. If you can find a way to be freed, take the opportunity. Be a free man. So Paul actually is looking and trying to say, hey, if you can find a way, take it. Take the opportunity. What we're seeing is this pattern in the New Testament that Paul is basically dealing with the reality of slavery. Peter does that as well. But if possible, don't be slave to men. That's this underlying current that's there. And there's a basis for it. And it's this, because we are in Christ, we all have the same value and worth. This is the repeated New Testament argument. Now, I argued that from the Old Testament, right, from Genesis chapter 1, but you realize it's specifically stated about us that are in the body of Christ. Because we are in Christ, we all share the same value and worth. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 
The point being is you're in one body, doesn't matter what your social status is. But Paul goes on to write in Colossians 3.11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but is all, but Christ is all and in all. You hear the basis. He's saying the social categories you can apply do not apply in the body of Christ. Christ is the great level of the playing field when it comes to value and worth. And by the way, going back to 1 Corinthians, that's part, what he's arguing is we have all these different spiritual gifts that God has given, and it doesn't mean just because the pastor gets up and preach, he has greater worth in the body of Christ than the one that may serve behind the scenes and never being seen. In fact, I might argue that person stands to gain greater rewards than I do because they do it without question so that they would not be noticed among men, but they would be pleased before their Lord. Or in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is this constant argument throughout the New Testament, New Testament that the gospel fundamentally changes every one of our relationships, how we view them and how we live in them, even those that may not be godly. The gospel changes it. And so now I want to move to what I want to argue from this passage today. I just I want us to see that the, the New Testament is not arguing for slavery. It is planting the seeds to say, if you live as Christians in the body of Christ, it will change this. Because you should all be free men. Because in Christ, this is where true freedom is found. And that should be true not only in a spiritual way among us, it should be true, and when we look at each other's relationship, it should free us. There should be none that even socially are held captive by us. Paul plants that seed. So back to the main point that I, I think we need to see out of this passage. We must do all our work, all our work, as an act of doing the will of God from the heart. That's the main thrust that I want to get out of this passage by arguing if you had to do it when you were in an unjust relationship as a slave, you can do it now. And what we will see is there are three motivations for this. Three motivations of why we must do all our work as an act of doing the will of God from the heart. So look there in Ephesians chapter 6, and I'll start with verse 5. And here's the first motivation. The sincerity of our service is from our fear of the Lord. The sincerity of our service is from the fear of the Lord. And you might put in parentheses, not the fear of man. Look in Ephesians 6.5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Obey, that is, do what they ask of you with sincerity. Okay, when I was in school, you know one of my least favorite things to do, if not at the bottom? Busy work. I hated busy work. You know what busy work is for, right? It's to keep guys like me from annoying the other people that aren't done yet, right? Because I, I, I had one of my children was built like me. And, and, and their siblings would complain, 
Why do they do that? And I knew. I was like, well, they're bored. That's why they go and needle you and mess with you. And like, what? They're entertaining themselves. You know what teachers do to make sure that those children given to that don't do that? What do you give them? Busy work to keep them busy, right? I know some of you in your jobs, you have work that you think this is just busy work. You're like, why am I doing this? I don't know. Sometimes in your job, you may have a job, you're like, I know it needs to get, everyone also has this part of your job. Any of you have that part of the job, the, job, the part you hate? I, I can tell you for me, expense reports. I hate expense reports. I hate them. I got to remember the receipts. I don't know where I put them. I probably washed them anyway, because my natural position for a receipt is my back pocket. And then I throw it in the laundry, right? And Dion's like, I'm, not, I'm tired of checking your pockets. You need to remember yourself, okay? They get washed, and then I'm like panicking around trying to find receipts for things that I spent money on, right? You just hate that. You got that part of your job you don't like doing? Guess what? That part of your job you are to do as unto Christ. And it's interesting because he says, we are to do it with fear and trembling. Now, in this passage, you could look and think, fear and trembling of the master? Well, no, the clarity is actually given in two ways. One is if you remember up in Ephesians 5.21, which is right before it enters in this whole household code section. It says that we are to submit to one another out of, and the word is translated there, reverence. It's the word fear, phobos. Reverence of Christ. But even more explicitly, Colossians 3.22, which is essentially the parallel passage in Colossians to Ephesians 6 here, it says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You see, the fear and trembling is not directed because of what the master can do to you, as in your earthly master. It's because of what your Lord can do to you, as in Jesus Christ. So you are serving out of fear, reverence for your Lord. Even in the busy work and the menial tasks that don't make sense and the things you hate doing, all those things, do it from the heart as a service to Christ. You know what that is? That's an act of graciousness. You are imparting grace. I have no idea why you're having me do this. But you've asked me, I will be faithful to what God has put me in, and I will walk in it faithfully and show the sincerity that I will serve my Lord even when I'm doing things I don't want to do. That speaks volumes. And what it does, it begins to open doors to the gospel. Because now I can share the gospel. Why would you do that? You ha- I guarantee you have co-workers going, I'm not doing that. Why are you going to do that? And you go, well, I don't know. I don't know why they're having us do it, but they've asked. That's part of me being a responsible employee, and I'm going to do it because my Lord, Jesus Christ, says I must do it as if I'm working for Him. And we do things for our Lord even when we don't know why. We will serve with sincerity of heart out of fear of our Lord. That's the first point. 
you'll notice that he says that it's not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, which gets to our second point. The second motivation is we serve God as we serve as God pleasers, not people pleasers. Okay, let's have an honest moment. Any of you like me, you're a people pleaser? Yeah. Some of you raise a hand because you're such a people pleaser, like he raised his hand, I gotta raise my hand, you know. I'm a people pleaser, right? I was a kid that liked to make my mom and dad happy, right? I learned obedience because I just like my parents to be happy with me, right? I, I learned to please my parents, which in all ways wasn't bad. But if that continues to be the driver of my life, if it's only to keep the other person happy, I can start doing very, very sinful things, can't I? There's a modern term we, we apply to this called codependency. I will just do things to make you happy, even if they're sinful and ultimately destructive. And one of the things that, that's being said here in Ephesians 6.6 6 and into 7 is that we serve as God-pleasers, not people-pleasers. Now, this doesn't mean you... okay. You know, logically, if you're exercising logic here, that doesn't mean you run around, I'm going to be people, um, making people mad. That's not your goal in life, okay? That's, that's not, remember what Paul said, is, 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 is it is possible with me, I try to live with peace at all men. Like, I'm making an effort here. I don't want to just make them mad. But if the motivation becomes people-pleasing, you're in trouble. Because it works in a lot of bad ways. If you find somebody you don't, don't like, you don't want to please, then you guess what you do? I don't care how they feel about it. I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm going to stick it to the man, as it were. Right? And I, I, there's a lot of our jobs that are frustrating. There's things that just absolutely infuriate you. I guarantee it. I'll let you know when I meet the perfect boss. I haven't found him or her. She doesn't, and he doesn't exist. Infuriates you. Why don't they fix this? Why don't they stop that? Why don't they do it this way, right? All those things go through your mind. But that doesn't become the excuse of I'm not going to do my job well because I'm not there to please that person. I'm there to please who? According to Ephesians 6, I'm not doing as I serve as people pleasers, but I'm doing as a bondservant of Christ. I'm serving my Lord. And so I will do my job in such a way that it pleases God. You see, we serve as God-pleasers, not people-pleasers. It says there, you actually, you actually do it, what is, you see where it says, from the heart? The literal word is from your soul. Suke. We use from the heart because we kind of understand that as the core place of our being and that where it all springs from. This is like saying, from the very depths of that which God has saved, I will serve. Think about that. I'm going to serve from the place of where my salvation was given, and that is the very depth of my sinfulness. He saved that, and from that very depth, I'm going to serve God, because he saved that, and it is worthy to serve him with everything I've got. And so it's, you serve doing the will of God from the, as it were, from the heart, from the soul. It gets into your bones, the very gut of who you are. I mean, it's just down deep. That's where I'm going to serve from. This is not a surface commitment. This is something that says, 
I will do it because that's what it takes for me to serve my Lord and show the gospel. And then he goes on, he says, notice, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man there in verse 7. The, the phrase there, goodwill, can also be interpreted and as, as interpreted when you look at it. For example, in the writings of Xenophon I mentioned earlier, it's very similar language to this, and it's actually interpreted as loyalty. I will render service loyal as to the Lord, not loyal to some man. What's at stake in my service is showing my loyalty to God. I mean, just think about that. Do you want to have to stand before your Lord and say, I was disloyal to you? The answer is no. But we do it not because it saves us. We do it because it's the work that God has prepared for us. You remember Ephesians 2, which we read now months ago. For you are saved how? By grace through faith. Not of your works. But you know what? He did that. Why? Because he prepared good works for us beforehand. You see, our service, our work is not to save us. Our service and work is because we've been saved. It is both an act of gratitude and an act of hope. Hope because we know there's rewards to come, which gets us to our third point. The third motivation is we serve not for human rewards, but eternal rewards. I want, you to, I want you to hear something, because we should rightfully glory in grace. And we, are, we don't earn our salvation. Shame and blame is not what motivates us. We don't, I don't walk around thinking, if I work harder for God, He's going to like me more. You know what? He likes me because I'm in Christ right? That's people pleasing. Like, I'm just going to walk around to see if I can somehow earn God's liking, but that's not how it works. We are, it's like your children. You love them no matter what they do, right? We are the children of God. He loves us, and we're not earning his love, right? That's not how it works. But we sure enough can show our gratitude for both what he's done and what he will reward with us in the future. You realize there are real rewards to be had. Now, the Bible's not abundantly clear exactly what those rewards will be. Now, one of them I know, because I've read Revelation at the end, 21 and 22. I will get to spend eternity in the presence of God with no sin, no more crying, no more death, good knees, not bad knees. I mean, everything's renewed, right? And I, as I've said before, sign me up for that. Yeah, that's the hallelujah. I know. Getting old is not for the weak, amen? Yeah, it's not. But you know who gets old? All the weak. Right? We all do. Because one of the things that we get reminded of in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 is that God's grace is sufficient for our weakness. Even as we grow and we fight all these physical ailments, they can turn into spiritual things that we struggle with. But you need to realize the Bible doesn't just look like, hey, just do it because I've done something for you. It's not a debtor's ethic. That's what John Piper's calls it, a debtor's ethic. Well, God did this for me, so now I've got to work off what God has done for me. Eternity's not long enough 
You will never work it off. You're going to be in debt the rest of your eternity if that's what your approach is. But that's not how the Bible talks about it. It talks about faithfulness because he is our Lord who's been so gracious to us. We are compelled now to serve him out of our gratefulness for what he has done and what he will do. I mean, the gospel doesn't stop at the cross. It's accomplished at the cross, but it keeps on going. What a great hope that we have. I mean, I'll tell you again, this is not how eternity will be. And if you don't get an amen out of that, then you, are, you do not have a vision for heaven and eternity, what the new heaven and new, the new, heaven and new earth are going to be like. Right? You will not have to listen to me preach anymore. Okay, good. And no one said amen. We're going to come back next week. But here's my point, right? Okay, Dion's just nice. She, she hears stuff like this all the time. She's like, thank you, Lord. No, okay, no, I didn't ask permission to say it, but it's true. Anyway, so just look at it. Ephesians 6, 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Know this. This is true. God will give it back to you in ways you cannot imagine. I mean, I, I could go through, Colossians 3.24 says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, Jesus Christ. That's who it's talking about. There, there's, we've already talked, there's this inheritance. This Holy Spirit in our life is what? A guarantee, a down payment for the reward that is to come. So if God's going to do this in this world that's so broken and sinful and still save us, what is he going to do in the world that's no longer sinful and broken? No mind can see, they can't ima- I can't see, mind can't imagine. You can't begin to imagine the glory. I mean, it's so, so inexplicable. You read the book of Revelation, and you probably come out more confused and clarified. And that's okay, because what John's having to do is represent something that's essentially unrepresentable. Because of the gloriousness of what God is going to do in the new heavens and new earth. I mean, I could go on. Colossians 1.5, that there is a hope laid up in heaven. Or how about Colossians 1.12, we have an inheritance of the saints of light. Or Colossians 1.27, there is hope of glory. Or Colossians 3.1 and 2, there is see, seeking things that are above. In Ephesians 1.14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Ephesians 1.18, the riches of the glorious inheritance that are in the saints. There's an inheritance to be had. Or Ephesians 5.5, 5, there's an inheritance in the kingdom of God, of, of Christ and God. Hebrews 10.36, that our confidence is we have a great reward that is waiting. Hebrews 1.11, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There is more to be had. I could go on and on. What would I, you could read the parable of the, the, the Minas over in Luke 19 and how God rewards those who are faithful servants with great rewards for their faithfulness. What we need to see, our faithfulness does not earn our salvation, but our God will reward it. And it should motivate us that even the worst of circumstances, I can serve as unto my one true Lord, Jesus Christ. And he finishes by saying that it's not just for the bond. He says it's also what? For the free man. And he goes after the masters in a very short phrase. And he says, masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. 
and that there is no partiality with him. You see, Paul, he, he tells the servants who are in the worst position do this, and then he stops and he turns right at those masters. The actual word is kurios. It is the word Lord. And I think Paul does that very intentionally. Because every time we see the word kurios next to Jesus or Jesus Christ, we translate it the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is, you may be labeled as the earthly Lord, but both of you actually only have one true Lord, and that is Jesus Christ. So do the same to them. As you are put in authority over others, this is what it means. Those with authority over others must serve the same Lord with the same motivations. Masters, don't do it to make it convenient for your life. Don't threaten them to get what you want. Stop doing that. This is your brother and sister in Christ. You should have the same motivations that they've been called to. You should have the motivations that when you look back, what you're looking at is you don't serve as a man pleaser, you serve as a God pleaser. That when you look at what you're supposed to be doing in your relationship, you are even serving those under you as the Lord. That you're doing it because there's a reward to be had, not in this life, but in the next. In eternity for what, the way in which you lead and manage. You see, it's easy to manage for our own self-pleasure, for our own convenience, to get what we want. But the real question is, are we doing it as unto the Lord? And that's what Paul tells the masters. There's no partiality with God. It's not like he looks at the masters somehow differently than the bondservants. They're the same, and they will be judged on the same criteria. You can go look at Luke, go back to Luke 19 in the parable of the Minas, and it actually is saying, I give to some, I mean, different amounts, but they're all judged on the same basic thing. Have you been faithful to your Lord? What I hope you will see from this passage is the fact that all that we do must be done unto the Lord. Right? You, you remember 1 Corinthians 10.31? Whatever you eat or whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All of it. So here's what I hope we will remember. Let us all do the will of God from the heart to glorify our true Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Father, I thank you for the challenge that is our brothers and sisters in Christ who have lived in history in relationships that we can't imagine. And yet, Father, you call them to serve not their human masters, but serve the Lord. God, help us. We, we realize how much easier is our lives that we can serve faithfully where you've put us. God, for those that are struggling in their work, at their jobs, that it's demoralizing, discouraging. God, it's frustrating. Father, may the Spirit work in their lives. Not that they would feel guilt and shame, but they would be compelled by gratefulness and hope.
I don't serve this one who calls me their manager or my boss. I serve my Lord. And I do this for His glory. Because He will reward even my graciousness in this life. Father, we pray the day will come in which we will be able to stand before You and hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not for our own glory, but for You, Yours. Because we want to be the people that say not to us, not to us, but to Your name give glory because of Your love and faithfulness. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the Holy Spirit. Amen.